Oh, we are wrapping up a series of messages on viral verses, those verses that uh, oftentimes get a lot of uh, playtime, airtime, uh, tweeted and shared and uh, liked and all those things, but uh, sometimes aren't always uh, taken in the, the best of context, and sometimes because of that are, are oftentimes a little bit misapplied along the way. We've had two kind of cornerstone truths uh, for this entire series. They're complementary truths, and in some sense, two sides of the same coin. The first truth has been we have no right to hold God responsible for a promise we've misunderstood. Uh, and sometimes we can do that. Uh, because sometimes it's kind of like we feel like, well, God hasn't delivered or God hasn't come through. And we get maybe uh, frustrated, angry, upset, uh, even with God, if we're honest. Uh, but it's a part of it is because maybe we're trying to hold God responsible for a promise that he never made in the first place. The flip side of that coin, I think, is a very positive one. And that is that in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, we absolutely can rely on all the promises of God when when they're properly understood and applied. And I don't mean that to kind of be, you know, a legal speak or a loophole or, or whatever it may be, but it is that sense of, yes, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. When we properly understand what it is that Scripture is communicating to us, we can latch on to that promise. We can rely on the promises of God. And this morning, what we want to look at is, is a verse that may be very, very familiar to you, uh, it certainly is a verse that is popular uh, even among uh, uh, athletic uh, teams and uh, athletes along the way, and it's Philippians 4.13. And it's been a viral verse, but perhaps it really got some viral traction about 11 years ago during the 2008 college football season when a quarterback at the University of Florida named Tim Tebow uh, began to write Philippians 4.13 to scratch it in his eye black. And, and, of course, they were getting lots of national attention as they were top team. He is a, was a Heisman Trophy winner, so a lot of TV time actually there on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine with the, the eye black there, and it, it became just a, kind of a, a sensation there as he had lots of exposure there with it. Uh, just as an aside, Tim tells the, uh, the, the story that uh, during that, that season, he actually got the idea from some of his teammates because they were like writing a zip code or something on their eye black. And he thought, well, why not, you know, maybe make use of Scripture? So he put Philippians 4.13. And so uh, for all the games during the 2008 season, he had Philippians 4.13 there on his eye black. And they made it to the, the national championship game, the BCS national championship game, uh, going to be the, probably the most watched game of the year. And he just kind of felt, because he's a, he's a follower of Christ Jesus, he kind of felt a prompting of the Lord to, to write John 3.16 on there for the national championship game. And he kind of somewhere along the way shared that with his coach, and his coach said, no, 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 you know, because sometimes as coaches, we kind of get real superstitious, right? You got to do everything exactly the same way, right? Uh, and he said, no, no, Philippians 4.13 brought us here. Don't mess with success, right? And, you know, coach, come on, really, I black brought us here, come on, right? Uh, and so he, he kind of talk, talked him off the ledge, actually put John 3.16 on his I black for the national championship game. They did go on and win that game. Uh, 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 that year. Uh, and he said afterwards, uh, he was having dinner with his parents and Coach Urban Meyer and some folks. And he said, Coach Meyer got a call during dinner. 
from someone from the public relations staff there from the University of Florida. And they told him that they had just been told uh, that during that national championship game uh, that John 3.16 had been Googled, had been searched online uh, over 90 million times. Uh, so you never know. You never know what the, the power of one verse might do. It's a little closer to home. A Charlotte product by the name of Steph Curry, and some of you uh, Steph Curry fans, all right? Uh, Steph Curry comes from a very athletic family, uh, uh, both his mother and his father. Uh, his father actually played at Virginia Tech and went on to have a very successful uh, NBA career. Uh, uh, and I think he was uh, with the Charlotte Hornets uh, uh, for part of that career as well. Uh, and Steph, a uh, very, very successful high school player here in the Charlotte area, uh, Hope to get some some good Division I articles, perhaps, um, offers, perhaps even follow his dad's footsteps at Virginia Tech. Uh, but he didn't get a whole lot of offers. And part of it was because he was slight of build and frame, and there was some concern whether he would really be able to hold up to the rigors of, of uh, major college basketball. And so one of the few offers that he did get was for Davidson right up the road here. And some of you know the rest of the story. He went on and uh, had an incredible career at Davidson, really got some national spotlight through an NCAA tournament, ended up being drafted by the Golden State Warriors and has gone on to kind of start to rewrite history books in terms of some three-point shooting. He's been the league MVP and won some championships and all of those things. But he tells the story because, you know, he was discouraged and feeling down and, and you know, it, in some sense, David was probably a settle for him, uh, not certainly where he probably thought he was going to be. His mom gave him two scriptures when he went to school. One was Romans 8.28 that we looked at earlier in this series, and the other one was Philippians 4.13. Uh, and he actually, very often, even today as a pro, you'll see he'll write one of those scriptures uh, on his shoes uh, during the game. Uh, so much so that when his first signature shoe came out uh, from uh, uh, the folks, I think, at Under Arbor, uh, they, oops, back up, uh, it had 413 there uh, on the laces, and the start of the verse uh, inside the tongue of the shoe, I can do all things. Now, please hear my heart on this. I am, I am for any way to get God's word out, right? If putting it on iBlack gets 90 million people to look up John 3.16, I'm for it, aren't you? <laughs> I'm for it, man, really. But you have to kind of wonder, because this is a verse that actually when the Lord was so gracious to bring me back to himself, I, for, Philippians 4.13 was one of the first verses I ever memorized. And so it, yeah, very important to me, but you have to wonder, is that really what it was about? I mean, did Paul write that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we could lift more weights, run a little faster, jump a little higher, beat somebody else? And what do you do if folks from both teams are quoting Philippians 4.13, right? <laughs> I mean, like the, the team with the most scriptures win? I don't, I, I don't know. What do you do with some of those things, right? My guess is there may be something just a little bit more to it. 
So let's pull this verse in like we've been doing. Let's pop open the hood and let's kind of unpack it a little bit and take a look at it. Let's make sure that we understand the background. The background is Paul is writing this letter uh, from prison. Uh, most scholars feel like he is in Rome, this Roman imprisonment that actually if you go to the end of the book of Acts, you'll find uh, Paul ending up in Rome. He's in prison. It's probably some form of a house uh, uh, arrest, so he has some, some freedoms uh, within that context, particularly for people to, to come and go uh, before him. But he's in prison, and during this time he wrote uh, Philippians and some of the other what sometimes are called the pastoral epistles along the way. Uh, in this particular letter, he's writing to a group of believers in a place called Philippi. As a place where he went sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may remember from the book of Acts, Lydia, uh, others came to Christ, uh, began this, this New Testament uh, church, this uh, new life, a new community in Christ Jesus. And, and they continued to kind of be an encourager, a supporter of Paul along the way. And they helped at times uh, even financially. And that, that's kind of the occasion for this particular letter. The believers in Philippi have sent a gift. Uh, and he's writing a letter to thank them, to encourage them, and to instruct them. Uh, and because he had, you know, some freedoms, if you will, under house arrest, uh, not, don't think like our prison system and stuff, that very often a prisoner in this setting, if they were going to get anything, it was because somebody resourced that from the outside. Uh, whether it was meals or materials or, or whatever it might be. And so, and so a gift was, was, was incredibly, incredibly important in these settings to have somebody on the outside advocating for you and ministering to you and helping you along the way. And so uh, he, they've sent this gift uh, by the hands of a guy by the name of Epaphroditus, uh, and he's writing to say thank you, but also, as he always does, to encourage them uh, and to instruct them. So that's the background, so that when we come to chapter 4, uh, toward the end of this letter, uh, we find Paul kind of revving up the thank you uh, one more time. And I want you to see uh, three kind of parts of this as it fits together, beginning in verse 10. This is all part of his response to their gift. And the first is joy. Just see Paul's joy there in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And he's just reminding them, and joy is a theme of this letter. It permeates uh, the letter to the, the Philippians. And there was a joy, and it was a spontaneous joy. There was a sense of, uh, of wow, this gift come. And, and remember, it's not like, not like you and I today. I mean, we, we order a package, right? And we get an email, you can track your package, and, and you kind of know when it's coming. Well, he, he didn't know. And so there's this sense of, uh, of a spontaneous rejoicing over uh, this, this unexpected gift, this unexpected blessing that has come. But he also kind of has an important qualification. Uh, he's thankful for the gift and he's rejoicing in that, uh, but he, just, he, he knows, he said, apart from the gifts, I knew that you were indeed concerned for me. Uh, but you just had no opportunity. It may have been they, they didn't know where he was, or it's not like he could post on his uh, social media feed, right? You know, hey, hanging out in Rome now, uh, or whatever. But, you know, that he, he, they, they tracked him down. They found out he was there. Uh, they had concern all along, but now they had opportunity. And so he said, listen, I know your concern, and I, there, that was never in doubt. Thank you for this incredible gift. So there's joy. In the midst of that joy, though, he reminds them of his contentment. Uh, 
He reminds them of a contentment that now marks his life. Look at the next two verses, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he tells us some things about this, this contentment that now marks his life. And the, the word contentment there really means satisfaction, uh, sufficiency. So the Stoic uh, philosophers of the day, uh, it would have been a, certainly a self-sufficiency and a self-satisfaction regardless of what, what may have been taking place all around you. He says, I have this contentment, and it is a learned contentment. It was not his default setting, right? It's not something like, I was just born this way, I don't know. Uh, no, for most of us, contentment is not something we're born with, right? Watch little children interact, right? I mean, they want what they want when they want it, usually, right? And fact is, if another child has it, they will take it from them very often, right? Because they are not content for the other child to have that toy that suddenly has become incredibly valuable in my eyes because you're playing with it. Now I want to play with it, right? And so we grab things. We got to have things. We want things. Contentment is not our default setting. Paul said, it is something I have learned. It is something that God has worked into my life along this journey as a follower of Christ. And it's a dynamic contentment. It's dynamic. He talks about kind of the, the, the range of that. He said, I have learned to be content in any and every circumstance, uh, how, to, how to be brought low and how to abound. In the variety, in the ebb and the flow of life, the, the dynamic flow of life is that uh, the, this contentment I have learned is something that, uh, that doesn't depend upon the circumstances of the day. I'm writing from prison. Before he had gotten to Rome, he had already been in prison for a couple of years before that in Caesarea. And so there is this long period of time where he's been living as a prisoner. The trip to Rome was fraught with all sorts of challenges and dangers along the way, including a massive shipwreck and being bit by a viper and all of these things. And so in the dynamics of changing circumstances, he learned a contentment. And it was extreme. And what I mean by extreme, he says, again, in any and every circumstance, I have learned facing plenty or hunger, abundance or being in great need, even to the extremes of the human experience, I have learned to be content. I have learned the secret. Now, where Paul would have radically deviated from the, the Stoics of his day would have been his contentment was Christ-centered. It was centered uh, not in, in kind of like I'm just kind of oblivious to what's happening around me. I don't feel anything. Uh, but it was, it was centered in his relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's fulfillment came not from what he accomplished, not from what he had, but from whose he was. 
but from who's he was, the one that he belonged to, defined his life. It gave meaning to his life. It became the center of his life. It became that which gave him that anchor regardless of what was happening around him. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord at his disposal. That, that was Paul. That was Paul. He, he had this contentment because he said, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. Regardless of the situations, abundance, hunger, great opportunity, great opposition, free, feasting, imprisoned, hungry, I have learned to be content. Because whatever those situations, I belong to the Lord. And I am fully at his disposal. I have learned to be content. It's an expression, it's had various ways of wording. I don't know who first coined it. It, it, it gets reshaped through the years, but it may be one worth keeping close. Knowing him is the greatest treasure. Walking with him is the greatest pleasure. Living out his plan on earth, the greatest significance. See, that's what Paul knew. That's why he could be content, because it was centered in Jesus Christ. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the challenge, regardless of the size of the opportunity that seemed too big for him, he knew knowing Christ Jesus is my greatest treasure. And nothing or no one can ever take that away. And walking with him brings me the greatest pleasure. And living out his purpose, his plan on this earth is the greatest, most significant thing I could ever do. The world may never applaud it or notice it. I may never reap huge financial rewards because of it. But it gives my life the greatest <laughs> significance. That was the picture of Paul's contentment. Now, as I was researching for this message, I came across a question, and it just challenged me personally. It just seems like one of those contentment testing questions, and I figure I shouldn't be the only one to be challenged, right? Uh, so let me, let me share it with you. What if what if what is best for the kingdom of God is not best for you personally? Anybody else feel ouch? Are you willing for God to do what is not best for you if it's best for his kingdom? Now we're in church. We know what the answer is supposed to be, right? <laughs> But that makes me gulp. I, I, am I really at the point in my life where you, knowing you is my greatest treasure? Where walking with you is my greatest pleasure? That fulfilling your purpose and plan in and through my life my greatest significance.
And even if it's not what's personally best for me, if it's personally best, if it's best for the kingdom, amen. Amen. Paul operated out of that mindset. And he had this incredible, incredible contentment because of it. He had joy. He was blessed and encouraged by the the Philippians pouring into his life. But he had a contentment regardless of the circumstances. Now, let me make one thing clear. When we talk about contentment, sometimes people stretch that or take that or push that in areas it wasn't meant to be. We're not talking about that, that I, I am content with like who I am and where I'm at, like even my relationship with the Lord. Now, Paul talked about a striving for that which is ahead, pursuing that which uh, God has laid hold of him. Uh, and some people kind of use the idea of contentment to kind of blow off any need for personal growth or change. So they just kind of say, well, I'm kind of content with who I am, and and that's just who I am. And if you don't like it, that's your problem, or, you know, whatever it may be. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Hopefully, if you hung around here for a few years, you've heard me say repeatedly, yes, God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you way, 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 way too much to leave you that way. And so there is this calling. There is this stretching to, to continually grow and become the person that he created me to be. And so while I find contentment regardless of the circumstances, that doesn't lead to a complacency in who I am or the growth that he wants to bring into my life. Which leads us to the third thing, and that is Paul's confidence. His confidence, and this brings us to uh, that verse that uh, many of us uh, have uh, quoted and clung to and celebrated and perhaps had on things through the years. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him. A more accurate translation may be in him because it's a dependent confidence. His confidence was not, I can do all things because I am just so stinking good, right? I got my act together. The rest of you need to get my book and I'll tell you how, right? No, 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 no. It was a dependent confidence, a dependent confidence. Through him or in him, in this union with him, in this connectedness to him. All things. Now, the proper understanding of all things, like other parts of Scripture, is controlled by the context. So in the context of what we've just been talking about, Paul in prison, gift from the Philippians, saying thank you and encouraging, talking about he's learned contentment. What are all these things? Paul's referring to all these situations he's just been writing about. In abundance, when I'm brought low, feasting or hunger, freedom, imprisonment, regardless of the situation, in all these things, In all these things, I have a strength that is beyond my own. You might phrase it this way. I have the power to face all such situations in union with the one who continually infuses me with strength. 
Read Paul's letters. Oftentimes he talks about uh, the God's strength and God strengthened him, Christ strengthened him, and laboring with all the, the energy that God pours into him. He, he's reminding the Philippians, the secret to my contentment is I have learned, I have power to face all the situations in union with the one who continually infuses me with strength. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible that we know is the message, put it this way, whatever, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Now, sometimes in our culture, we say whatever, right? Yeah, whatever. Well, Paul's going to say in that, whatever, whatever comes, whatever happens, Whatever the challenge, whatever the opportunity, whatever the obstacle, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Paul had this confidence. It was a confidence not in his own ability, but it was confidence that he would be divinely strengthened. He would be divinely strengthened to do anything and everything that God calls him to do. Not necessarily anything like in his wildest imagination. He just thought, I'd like to do this someday. But anything and everything God called him to do, he had this confidence that he would be divinely strengthened to be able to make it. When you read Paul's letters, look for the phrase, in Christ. It's one of his favorites. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because he knew that his life flowed from that union, that connection, that relationship with Jesus Christ, being in Christ, made all the difference. So what does this promise mean for you and I today? I mean, what does it look like if it's not just for uh, winning the trophy or winning the championship or getting the big shoe contract? What does Philippians 4.13 look like for you and I today? What does it look like to live in light of this promise? Well, let me just give you six, six things, and I think they're connected with his promise, particularly in the context of contentment. And the first one is anchor your identity in Christ. You want to live in light of this promise, you have to live like Paul lived. And his identity was anchored in his relationship with Jesus Christ. The secret to contentment is finding my identity, my security, and my satisfaction, not in what I have, but in whose I am. If my security and satisfaction and contentment are always connected to circumstances, to relationships, to my health, or to whatever else it must be, that contentment is going to ebb and flow and sometimes very rapidly and very radically. But when I am anchored, my identity is anchored in whose I am. It makes all the difference in the world. Scott Nagy was a basketball coach, I still is, uh, a collegiate basketball coach. A few years ago, before taking another position, he was at South Dakota State, the Jackrabbits. Any Jackrabbit alumni here today? No, not a whole lot of South Dakota State alum in the house this morning, right? I get it. They don't make their way to the Carolinas too often, right? Uh, but they were uh, a smaller Division I school, uh, but they made the NCAA uh, basketball tournament. And you may say, well, that's not such a big deal. If you're a Duke or a Carolina fan, so you think, like, well, we make it all the time. Uh, but for smaller schools, that's a huge thing. It's a huge thing financially. Uh, 
uh, for what they get for recognition. Uh, usually after a school makes an appearance like that, their enrollment jumps up. And so, so it's, really a, it's really a huge thing. And they were getting ready to play, play, play for their conference championship. And if they won the conference championship tournament, they would get into the NCAA tournament. And Coach Nagy gave the, you know, the pregame speech. And on this particular occasion, it was inspirational and really, really rich theologically. He just looked at his players and he said, I want you to play like you're loved. I want you to play like you're loved. Play freely. Love isn't dependent on your performance. No matter how you play, you're loved. Play tonight with that in mind. I thought, that's, that's pretty good theology, <laughs> right? What if you and I played like we were loved? We lived every single day secure in the knowledge that we were loved. Regardless of our performance today, regardless of whether we chalk it up as a win or a loss, we are loved. We are secure because of whose we are in Christ Jesus. Let me encourage you. Anchor your identity in Jesus Christ. Play, live, work like you are loved because that's who you are in Jesus Christ. But not only anchor your identity in Christ, but you want to live out that promise, you want to live out that contentment, avoid comparisons, right? Avoid comparisons. Can I talk to somebody in the room this morning? Some of you, your contentment factor would jump several points if you take a social media sabbatical, and you think I'm joking, I'm serious. I mean, quit comparing your worst moments to somebody else's best photographs, right? I mean, just start reading even some of the research, the connection between social media usage and depression in some young people. You've got to avoid comparisons. We all do it. God didn't call Paul to run Peter's race. Peter didn't have the same assignment that John had. God has a race for you to run, and it's going to be different from everybody else's race. And if you spend so much of your time and energy focusing on somebody else's race, why do they get to do that? Why don't they have to put up with this? If I didn't have this... You won't have an identity anchored in Christ, and you won't experience the freedom and the power of contentment or the strengthening of Jesus Christ. Avoid comparisons. Thirdly, adjust to the reality of change. Just adjust to the reality of change. It's been well said, the only constant is change. The only constant is change. And that's just, that's not slowing down. That's getting faster and faster and faster, isn't it? And so you and I have to be able to adjust to, adapt to the reality of change. I was reading about a fellow that uh, his father-in-law uh, was, was a farmer, kind of came from generations of, of farmers. And, and so he had lived his whole life in a rural setting on a huge of a family farm. Uh, his son-in-law, who was writing, grew up in the city. He had been an urban dweller his whole life. 
Now, they, they had a good relationship. It wasn't anything like that. But he said one time they, he was back, they were visiting his in-laws. And so he spent the day just on the farm, walking the farm with his father-in-law. I had lots of rich conversation. And he said at one point, their conversation kind of slipped into uh, what's the difference between quote-unquote city folk uh, and rural people, a farmer. And as they talked, he said his father-in-law kind of impact, uh, unpacked this word of wisdom. He said, what I've noticed is that most city folks, as he called them, they expect each year to be better than the last. They think it's normal to get an annual raise, maybe a bonus, to make more this year than you did last year, for it to keep going up and to the right. But a farmer, a farmer understands that life doesn't work that way, that you can work hard and you can do everything you can do and you can leverage the latest and the best technology but you're still dependent on forces outside of your control dry seasons storms floods infestation of insects storm that whips through at harvest time before everything can be gathered in said, as a farmer, you understand, even though you work hard, maybe even harder this year than last year, the harvest isn't always better. Some years are really good years, and some years are really, really hard years. And that's not just farming, is it? That's life. That's life. And if I'm going to live with a Christ-centered contentment, if I'm going to experience his strength, I have to be able to adjust to the reality of change, that some seasons are going to be harder than others. Some seasons are going to be filled with such abundance, we almost want to say, stop, Lord. Adjust to the reality of change. Fourth, draw on Christ's power. I think this is what Paul would say to us. It is in him, in him. Draw on Christ's power. Contentment doesn't mean that you and I will always like the situation we're in. We won't. But with Christ's power, you can handle it. You are sufficient for it. You can cope. That's the power that Christ offers as we are in union with him. Paul talked about it. We've looked at this uh, passage from 2 Corinthians, his, his struggle with the thorn in the flesh and crying out, God, take it away. And that's that message he got from the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he concluded, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
that he, he knew that it was, it was coming to term with his weaknesses, his need, his deficiencies, that he was able to draw upon a strength that was greater than his own, and that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I was reading about uh, Billy Graham as he had shared with some of his uh, associates through the years, and he talked about uh, there were times when, when no matter how many times he had preached, no matter how many crusades they had done, there were times when he would come to those moments and he would just be gripped by this fear. The fear of the enormity of the task, the enormity of the responsibility, fear that uh, what he was going to say wasn't good enough, it wasn't going to measure up, it was going to be criticized or, or written up in the next day's paper, or, or fearful over, over a meeting with a high-profile person that he never thought he would ever be in the presence of. And he talked about how often fear just gripped his heart and gripped his head. He talked about sometimes as a crusade would go on, he would just be physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually just worn down, and there were nights he just didn't even think he had the strength to be able to go out one more time. And he said in those moments, he would come back again and again and again to Philippians 4.13 to just cry out to God, God, I am not sufficient for these things. God, I don't have the strength to do this. God, on my own, this is crash and burn. But I can do all things through him, in him, who strengthens me to draw on Christ's power, to recognize that in my need, he meets me with a supernatural strengthening. And I want you to see two more thoughts on, on how to live this out straight from Philippians 4. If we go down to verse 19, he reminds us trust. Trust God to meet my needs. As he's kind of wrapping up the letter, he, he again says, thank you. It was kind of you to share. I've received full payment. I'm well supplied. And what you have given through Epaphroditus is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then as a reminder to them in their generosity, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To, to come to that moment, maybe a moment where you're panicking, maybe a moment when you're not sure what to do, maybe a moment when you think this is too much, too big, too hard, too difficult, and you come back in that moment and, and say, if God has called me to it, then I can trust him to meet every one of my needs. Not necessarily all my greeds, <laughs> not necessarily everything on my wish list, but without a doubt, he is faithful. He will not leave me or forsake me. I can trust God to meet my needs. He can do it in such a wide variety of days, ways, through my own labor, through other people, through unexplainable circumstances. But to trust in a God who will meet my needs. And then in verse 20, he reminds us to focus on glorifying God. Focus on glorifying God. As you trust him to meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Oh, why, why could Paul find contentment in that prison? Because he knew. He, he knew that it wasn't about his name, his fame, his glory, his agenda, but he was focused on glorifying God. And God, if you can be glorified by me being in prison, I don't understand it. I don't fully get it, but I am going to seek to figure out and focus on glorifying you in the midst of this situation and these circumstances. And when you put your focus there, It brings great strength, great encouragement, and great contentment to your heart. You see, discontentment is a signal. When I I feel discontentment welling up, it's a signal that Jesus Christ is not the center of my life. That something else has taken its place on the throne. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a position, maybe it's a possession, maybe it's, it's how I thought my life was going to be or what this person should be doing for me or whatever it might be, but something else has become central to my life other than Jesus Christ. Discontentment's a signal. Pay attention. What is it that you're looking to for your hope, your security, uh, your, your sense of identity or whatever it may be? Because it's probably something other than Jesus Christ. Professor Tim Brown taught college for a number of years. And he said, you know, when you, you've taught college, you have students come through and you, you, you just connect better with, with some of them than others along the way. And he talks about one young student that was one of his all-time favorites. It was Tim Vanderbilt from Spring Lake, Michigan. He describes him this way. He said he's tall, broad-shouldered, curly hair, smile as broad as the dawn, as handsome as they come. He was a great student and even a better person. He graduated from the, the college and he took a job with Prince Corporation, now Johnson Controls. And as probably everybody that knew him expected, he scurried up uh, the ladder of success about as quickly as a young man could. That is until a raw-boned November day. Professor Brown was in his office and his assistant buzzed him and said, there's a call from a, a, a Tim Vanderbilt. He said, oh yeah, I know Tim, love him. They kept in contact some through the years. Please put him through. Picked up the phone and he said, Tim, how are you? And said, for the first time, he heard a different voice, a voice of weakness and fear. He said, not so good. He said, Tim, what's going on? He said, I I don't know. I'm in the hospital. I ain't got the flu or something, and my parents are out of the country. I I don't know what's going on. And so they they talked a little bit, and and Professor Brown said, well, I'm going to be in Grand Rapids you know, later this week, is it okay if I stop by and see you? He said, that would be great. And so he made his trip there to Grand Rapids, and he, he showed up at the hospital, but in the time from the conversation to when he arrived in the room, the doctors had been running their tests. They had been doing what they do. And they found out it wasn't the flu, that it was leukemia, and it was advancing rapidly. And they conversed for a while and even prayed and tried to encourage his young former student, 
tried to stay in touch. The weeks went by and the treatments continued, but they weren't having much effect. And so weeks later, he made his way back to Grand Rapids and he walked into Spectrum Health, room 5255. Let me just read you his words. I walked into the room and his mother was sitting in the corner crying. You can't blame her. Tim was lying on his side. They had positioned the pillows between his skinny little legs. His hair wasn't curly anymore. There wasn't enough energy for him to look at me. So I got down on one knee so I could look him eyeball to eyeball. I said, hi, Tim. He said, hi, Tim. There was this long, awkward pause. Said, I've been a professor. I've been a pastor for 20 years. I didn't know what to say. But he broke the silence. He said, I've learned something. Now, I don't know a lot, but I know enough that if a person is dying and they have something to say, shut up and listen. Tell me, partner, what have you learned? Well, I've learned that life is not like a DVR. Now, I didn't get it any more than you get it right now. And so I asked him, Tim, I don't get it. What do you mean? After a long pause, he said, life's not like a DVR. You can't fast forward through the bad stuff. Long pause. I thought, where does he get this stuff? But then he went on. But I have learned that Jesus Christ is in every frame And right now, that's enough. That's enough. Life isn't like a DVR. You can't push pause. You can't rewind and play the good parts over and over and over again. And you don't get to fast forward and skip over the parts you don't want to watch or don't want to live through. But if you have your spiritual eyes wide open, and if your heart's open enough, you'll discover that Jesus Christ is in every single frame, every pixel. And you'll discover that whether it's a good time you wish you could live over and over and over again, or a bad time you wish you could fast forward or edit out, that Jesus Christ being in the pixels is more than enough. Because you can do all things through him who gives you strength. That's a promise that you can cling to. Would you join me as we pray to him together, please? Father, how we thank you that you are 
the God who is sovereign over all things and in all things, and God, that you are at work in every one of our lives, that there's not a a frame in any of our pictures, there's not a, a pixel in any of our lives where you are not there. And Father, help us today to be reminded, to remember, to rely on the fact that that is more than enough. And Father, I I don't know everything everybody's going through, but you do. You know what you're doing in the midst of the the best of times, in the midst of the hardest and the most difficult of times. And Father, you are faithful to meet us there. Father, when our strength is not sufficient, yours is more than enough. And so, Father, today I, I pray, I pray for myself I pray for uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ here. I pray for those that we know and love and care about. Father, today, would you draw us to yourself? Today, regardless of, of the situation we find ourselves in or the situation we're getting ready to walk into and we don't have a clue about yet, Father, would you remind us, not just in our head, but in the depths of our heart, that we can rely on you, that you are more than sufficient. Your strength is more than enough for all these things. I'm just going to invite you to be still for just a moment or two more in the presence of God.